This morning, I want to minister to you, and I'm going to have to, many mornings I don't have any notes, but this morning I do, and I'll follow them pretty close because we'll never get out of here if I don't. But I want to minister to you on the subject of what are you, and I'm not pointing a finger, the uh, finger, it's for all of us, if I could, I'd sit there and listen to myself and say, yes, I join myself with that message. But what are you, or I should say this, what are you and I letting slip? What are you and I let, letting slip? So you'll, we'll look into the word here. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Appreciate everybody out there that's watching. We love all of you guys. Your family to us. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the book of Hebrews. But I am very familiar and have read it many, many times and studied it and studied the wording in it. So I'm speaking from a sense of familiarity with it and a contextual familiarity with it. So I'm going to say some things to start with so it'll kind of help you to be more familiar with the book of Hebrews. The reason for Hebrews is to save the Christian Jews from departing from Christ and going back to the law of Moses. That's the single reason. It was for that purpose that Paul or whoever, some say it may have been someone else, we don't have his actual signature on the book, but it was for that purpose that it was written to the Jewish community but is there application for us as Gentiles and modern-day church? Absolutely so. Else it wouldn't be in part of the canon of Scripture. The Jews then that were dispersed throughout Palestine and throughout the world were especially being persecuted by their own religion, Judaism, to go back and to renounce Christ and to go back under the law. You've got to understand that Christianity was relatively new. And the introduction of a new thought, just think if you had been always raised, now we can't really relate to this. In fact, I dare say there is nobody, nobody watching or nobody in here that is truly contextually tempted to commit the sins that are, is the predominant sin listed in Hebrews, which is to renounce Christ and to go back under the law. Unless you're, you know, some people say, well, there's people that are doing legalistic things. That's an argument, I understand. But it's one thing to, to do certain things that are legalistic. It's another thing to do things where you renounce Christ because you're going back under 
Mosianic law and the ways of Judaism. Now, just imagine if you, this temptation is not necessarily, that particular temptation is not necessarily conducive to for us, but what if you were raised every day of your life from a baby and uh, you were you were raised to believe that uh, the mo- Mosaic law was it. That was your basically your salvation. Uh, most all, especially young men. Uh, sorry, ladies, the women did not get as much uh, advantage and perks as far as schooling and synagogue and those kinds of things. But almost every young man whether rich or poor, went to the synagogue or something attached to the synagogue, a school, and would learn and would learn and would repeat, be able to repeat the first five books of the Bible. God. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm so thankful that I know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave and I've got a few more. But to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those are, those are bedtime books. What do you mean by bedtime? If you're fighting insomnia. Now, I love Genesis, all creation. And all. Get into Leviticus. It will help put you to sleep. (laughs) But it's anointed still. But just imagine that you had been raised that way for decade after decade. And then this explosion in the earth called Christianity, Jesus the Christ, comes in. And then you begin to serve him not according to the law or you don't even go to the synagogue anymore on the Sabbath. You've changed and switched your day of worship from Saturday, our Saturday, to the Christian traditional day of Sunday, the first day of the week. Now, right to start with, just because of them watching you what day you go to church, they know. They know that you are a Christian. And persecution was rampant at that time how so not so much that they some eventually were drug into courts prosecuted some really even to the extent of giving their lives but what if somebody blackballs you in the community and what if all of the community says well they're they've become a christian i used to buy from them i used to do commerce with them I no longer will buy from them. I'll boycott them, and everyone will. When you lose all of your customers, when you lose all, and then your finances go first. Your children are maligned. The children then were not being able to go to the finer places of education and learning because once you found out um, you were a Christian, that was it. And... We think that we are sometimes under a little persecution in America. 
minuscule, very minuscule compared. Don't get me wrong if things are, do not change and if we do not fight. We must have a revival. It is our only hope because if you're in a cloud and think, well, things will probably get better. They have not. And the rights and privileges of the Christian, uh, no matter what church you belong to, are slipping away fast every day. But I want to say this, that for them then, that persecution was the prelude. It was the prerequisite that started many to be brought into a place where there was a pressure being put on them. To renounce Christ will take you back. Imagine if you're, you're on the edge of bankruptcy. Because for the last year, you have been maligned. You've been cut off. If you're not a strong Christian, I mean really strong, that's why there's places in here that we won't get to today. In truth, we may be on this for a few services, but imagine if you're not a strong Christian, the temptation is going to be all the more greater. In fact, there are clauses in Hebrew, Hebrews that says you need to get strong because the stronger you are, the less likely you are to avert or divert or go back to. Now, renouncing Christ is a, it's a very serious thing. Obviously, it can cost you your salvation. But you're on the edge of bankruptcy, and they come to you and say, look, you'll have a high-pressured, intellectual, Ph.D. kind of sort of uh, Pharisee come to you and say, Renounce Christ, and I will give my endorsement. Today we would say, I'll open back up social media to you. I'll give my endorsement for everyone to once again start buying from you. The floodgates will, you may have been very wealthy at one time, and of the depletion of a few years and time, begins to destroy your finances. That's why also in a, a theme throughout Hebrews is endurance. You must endure. You must endure all the way to the end. Now this is applicable to us, even though the context then was different. But for those being pressured by these Pharisees, they were saying, we will, we, we'll walk out of this room and all we have to do is give our announcement their back. Because all you have to do is to renounce him. All it is is words. Just say the words. For us, it's not words. For us, it is our whole life. Christ is everything to us. He is our salvation. He is our eternal security in Christ. He is everything. But for those who were looking around the room saying, I am losing everything. My children are coming home crying every day at their persecution. And we've not even resisted to blood yet because he says that one place in here. And yet all of the persecution that is on us now is seemingly more than we can bear. You're telling me all I have to do is to renounce Christ and pledge my allegiance back to Judaism, and all this will stop. That's right. 
And so because of that understanding, uh, when you read the book of Hebrews, you have to interpret it in a different manner because when it talks about sins that would so easily beset us, sins and weights that so easily beset us, and different things that would, when it talks about sin per se in the book of Hebrews, it's not necessarily in the light of the sin that we talk about or we use in our verbatim. Or, you know, when we talk, we talk about, well, this one committed this sin or that or sin. Or it's not even the context necessarily of the sins that Paul addressed in his other epistles to the Gentiles. Fornication, adultery, lasciviousness, all those kinds of things. When we read Hebrews, we can interpret as in, how does this apply to us? But the sins there, or the sin that he was talking about, was the apostasy. That was the context. Don't apostatize. Don't uh, give yourself over. Don't give yourself over to anything that begins to cause you to go away from the Lord back into the temptation of easing your flesh and getting things off of you just because you're under pressure at this time. In that context, the book of Hebrews is, is to be understood. Does that help people? Okay. I will say this, that the theme of Hebrews, that's the context, but the theme, the theme of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is Jesus supersedes everything he supersedes it you get the theme the whole theme of hebrews in the first book the first chapter the first verse look at it with me god who at sundry that means at different at sundry times and in diverse places at different seasons or times and in diverse plate divers manners spake in the past, in time past, unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, and he's talking about from the time of Christ going forward, spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now let's just stop right there, because we don't need to go any further. That is the theme of the 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. Now, we're not teaching on the book of Hebrews this morning. I've just got to give you some contextual background for you to appreciate what he's going to say to us personally this morning. The theme of Hebrews is Jesus, to those, to those Christians that were fighting as Jews to renounce Christ, and the argument would be from the Pharisee, what about the tabernacle? Don't you appreciate it anymore? What about the temple? What about the holies of holies? What about the Levitical priesthood? What about everything that you grew up learning? You're going to throw that all away? And he goes in through a Paul or who the right goes into a masterful job of taking and showing where Jesus supersedes all of that. He supersedes the Levitical priesthood by a new and better way he supersedes uh, uh, the levitical priesthood because now he is a priest in heaven he supersedes sacrificial 
offerings of lambs and goats because now the blood of Jesus has replaced all of that. He starts out in this chapter 1, which we won't read, and telling them to start with, he's better than. The book of Hebrews is he's better than. If you just want to know, simplify, Jesus is better than. He's better than the law. He's better than anything. You know, if he was speaking to pagans, he would say he's better than all your idol, temple idols. But here he's speaking to Jews, Hebrews, and he's saying he's better than, he supersedes the law, he supersedes the Levitical priesthood, and he's your high priest in heaven. Now let's uh, look at chapter 2. And as I said, there is none of us that today are really as Gentiles, and there may be some Jewish people listening. My son-in-law in the front row was born a Jew. And now he is a Christian, born again, and spirit-filled with the Holy Ghost. So we appreciate that. But let's look at Hebrews 2, 1. It says, therefore we ought... Now, in that context that I just explained, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. That therefore is, you know, I always heard Pastor Dave say, if the word therefore is there, go back and find out why it's therefore. <laughs> so without going through chapter one, I just told you the, the theme of chapter one is Jesus is better than. So with that mindset, he's saying, therefore, understanding that he is better than angels, he's better than whatever. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Would you say the word slip with me? Pararuio is pretty much how it's pronounced. A Greek scholar might say a little different, but it means to flow. By example, to carelessly just pass or to let slip. Hebrews 2.2 2, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now let me talk to you just for a second about what is he talking about if the word spoken by angels the administration of Moses was given to him uh, by God, but via angelic administration, and, and angels ministered that. If you'll read Genesis, God was in the bush, but it also refers to an angel being there. So all of everything that God did then, you know, Moses had some kind of, face-to-face -face encounters with God but that administration is referred to as the administration or the time in which angels gave that over to mankind the law so he's saying if angels if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression if you went against the law and disobedience received a just recompense of reward how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which, now catch this, this is the one thing I, you've got to catch or you won't be with me on future pages in this understanding. If we neglect this, this salvation, which he says this, which at the first began 
to be spoken by the Lord. Who's our Lord? Jesus. And was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. In other words, all teaching of truth and doctrine came from him. He's the foundation. Everything that Paul wrote, everything that all of the the other authors in the books of the, the, the New Testament, they wrote based upon the foundation that he gave, the doctrine that he gave, the truth that he gave. It was first began to be spoken from him, by him. Verse 4, God also, now watch this, read it in your Bible, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Reading that verse, let me just say that on the heels of that verse. Signs and wonders and miracles that it just said is God's good housekeeping seal of approval that's his stamp of approval that what is being taught can be backed up by power. That's what it's telling us. That's what it's telling us. At first, it's telling us it first began to be spoken by him. Then it was confirmed by those, the apostles. They taught it. God, which is the Father, also also bearing witness in other words jesus said it the apostles repeated it and god raised his hand and says oh i'll i'll bear witness to that well how will you bear witness because we can't see you and we can't necessarily hear oh the way that i'll bear witness is with signs and wonders and gifts of the holy ghost in other words my stamp of that's right is I'll infuse it with power. I'll back it up with extreme power and glory. I'll say this because it be, it be the truth. God is not obligated to confirm or back up doctrine with his power that is not the doctrine of his son. He's not obligated. The problem, let's talk about the problem with that statement for a moment. I'll repeat the statement. God is not obligated to confirm or back up doctrine. In other words, what's being taught. He's not, he's not obligated to back it up with power, with signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If it is not his truth. In other words, if it did not originate from the prototype, which is Christ, God says, I... I don't have to back it up. I won't back it up. Now, having said that, then the problem that some may think or arise in the minds of some people is some will say, yes, but the church has had many that have walked in power and yet taught false doctrine. And that is a truth. That is true because the minister was ministering from a gifts anointing rather than a what we would call a more excellent way 
Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, please don't turn there, 12, 23, but covet earnestly the best gifts. He talks about all those gifts, you know, not just speaking in tongues, but a lot, miracles and interpretation of tongues and all those and word of knowledge, word of faith, word of, you know, all of those things. But he goes, ah, wait a minute. It's good to go after that. You could covet those. In other words, covet means to desire them. But earnestly, he says this, but earnestly, he said, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, we're not going to go there and teach that, but the excellent way was to come into the fullness of the love of God. And if you came into the fullness of the love of God, you would have all of that, but it would not be in a gifts anointing. The, when I say the gifts anointing, and I know there are people watching, they're like, what, what are you saying? Well, yeah, 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church, was, it, had, it had a lot of power in it in, sparse, in a sparse, like, evened out kind of way because there were divisions in the church because people were selecting what preacher they liked the most. Paul said, there's gifts, the gifts are being given to you. In essence, if, you, if we were to go through that whole thing, is because you're babies, just because you, you know, just because you have a supernatural gift, you could still act like a babe. Well, what would qualify a babe in Christ? Somebody that got offended about everything, was in division. But he says, I show unto you a more excellent way, and the more excellent way was that you are baptized in the fullness of God's love. Now, the revival, you hear the word revival a lot spoken around here. The revival that we're after it's not like you'll get a little portion and you'll get a little portion and you'll get a little portion. The revival in essence is, is that it doesn't stay behind the pulpit. It's for all of us. It's the power of God unleashed. It's the, it's the, it's the businessman. It's the businesswoman. It's the, it's the mother at home. It's the, it's the housewife. It's everyone. Now, grant you, there will always be pulpit ministry. Ephesians 4.11, he gave all of those ministry gifts. But the truth is, is that in this last day, great outpouring of his spirit, he wants everyone to experience it and there to be an equality in power. So any argument, uh, I'll say this, God confirms Jesus's doctrine with unlimited power. The more excellent way, as I said, is not the gift, is not a gift anointing, it is a constant, please catch this, it is a constant innate, meaning always residing, anointing that resides in you, in and with the believer. Hallelujah. God confirmed Jesus' doctrine, I can't miss this, with unlimited power because he spoke only the truth. Only the truth. I'll touch this a little bit more on how that some people can be really off and yet have some levels of power working in their life. In other words, power, I'm talking about they'll pray for the sick and something happens. But listen to this. You'll always, always, and somebody watching that knows kind of church history, 
you will always have examples of men like Alexander Dowie and William Branham that worked in power by the gifts but had crazy doctrines. But the power will not work in the church at large as it did in the book of Acts until we match his doctrine. Now, I'm not trying to be ugly towards, uh, you know, Alexander Dowie or William Branham. These men were pulpit ministries way in the past. They walked in extreme power in uh, a lot of different ways, healing ministries and all that. But they, uh, if you read books, you know, and it's, it's quite evident Really strange doctrine, especially the end. Dowie, you, if you just Google Dowie, Alexander Dowie from Chicago and just look, the first thing that will come up is him standing there in some kind of um, Levitical priest robe. He didn't start out this way. Um, and believing, he actually began to testify at the end that he was the Elijah to come. I think Branham did the same thing and taught that women were, you know, the seed of Satan. I bet his wife really appreciated that. So what I'm saying is, gifts, ministries, do not back up doctrine. Unleashed innate power to the church, which is a revival for everyone when God can unleash his glory as he did on Jesus and not like on the Corinthian church somebody said well, I, I, people I've heard people talk about those guys and more like them but the world looks at those guys and says weirdos you know if that's what people that you know pray in tongues start and I don't think Dowie was ever filled with the Spirit in that sense of the word. These men were not our examples. We have already had numerous. Now, let, I'll say this. This is something that prophetically that we've gotten here recently. We've already had numerous warnings that Satan is coming with a subverting deception that will get us just one, per, one degree off. One degree off. I want to stay focused on this word and truth. If truth, if me speaking this word was then backed up with signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, then I'm to come to a conclusion within myself is that the closer that I can get to the truth of this word, his doctrine, not my doctrine, then the power and the truth that is in me, when these line up for all of us as a group going forward, we're going to see an unleashing of presence and glory that we interpret. Our interpretation of that is, is that the greatest miracle of all is people are getting saved, right? Thousands are being born again. But along with that, there will be notable miracles that will be taking place. We 
Satan's main objective, and I believe this with all my heart, Satan's main objective since the birth of the church has always been to remove truth, which is sound doctrine, which are the words of Christ, that all the apostles, that was his main objective. And to replace it with something so very similar. But the similar begins a progressive migration what is so close today in one degree in a decade becomes two degrees in two decades becomes three and on and on and you get the idea in a century it doesn't even begin to reflect the original teachings of Christ although the teachings can be repeated and yet the interpretation is totally changed remember this know this always that the with with the replacement with that replacement of sound truth and doctrine comes a diminishing of power I'll read it for you again. Verse 3 in chapter 2. How shall we escape? You're right there so you can read it. If we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken. Who was the first one to speak it? Jesus, our Lord, by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by those who heard him. Especially we're talking about the apostles. The word neglect. Emilio. Emilio. In the Greek, and it means to be careless, to make light of, to neglect, to neglect, or to have no regard. Well, I'm not teaching you this morning just a lesson on Hebrews and what they went through, but the Holy Spirit wants us to understand that these documents that are set before us are the ground rules or the ground understanding for us not making the same mistakes that they made and returning back again to the power of the book of Acts. Now, we've studied the book of Acts. We've studied the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It always amazes me. Um, I have studied the, the scriptures for many, many years, and I've read and studied Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I can't find one place. There's not one place where anyone that came before him that he ever told them, uh, you know, anyone that came to him for healing or ministry that he ever said one time, uh, it's just not God's will for you right now. God wants to teach you something through this. If I could find that or if somebody could show it to me, then I might have a serious kind of reservation inside of me that maybe it's not God's will all the time to heal everyone. But the master, which is the prototype, went before us and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God, what is it your will? Is it your really your will, even though it doesn't really happen that much because of the condition of the church and the lack of faith in our prayers, is it really your will to, if you, got, if you got your best, let's say it like that, would you really be willing to heal 
anybody that asked you? Anybody that believed? And our faith has gone past a place of asking. We know that it's God's will, so we just implement it. We just speak it and say, this is what your will is. Body be healed. COVID go. Emilio, to neglect, means to make light of. They had to, he's telling them, don't make light of the things that you've been given concerning Christ. If you let that slip, then you are in serious trouble of returning to where you once were and apostatizing. The truth to us as a modern-day church is he's saying to us, let nothing of truth slip. And if you will hold to the truths of Christ, and or have we got there? Absolutely not. Are there things that yet needs to be correct, corrected in our doctrine? I would say probably so. But we're headed that way. We're headed that way through the power of the Holy Spirit. Negligence to the truth is the reason there is so little power in the church at large negligence to it thank god there has been just enough and i will say just enough i'm not trying to be mean i'm just saying just enough power at large to get people born again and i'm talking about the millions the masses the churches at least to get them born again somebody said well that's the most important absolutely there's no argument that being born again god comes in there changes your life you don't have to have the Holy Spirit, like as in speaking in tongues, to be, you know, to be born again. That's not a prerequisite. You don't have to have that gift to go to heaven. But Jesus gave us all the reasons why that we should seriously and earnestly consider that. And it's, it's so vitally important. But the reason why there is no power at large is because we have migrated or went away from the absolute teachings of Christ as interpretations. They can, they're still read from the pulpit every Sunday in many churches. And yet the interpretation is so misconstrued, so taken out of context, that it's, it's not even hardly a phantom of what it originally meant to the first church, what they understood it to be. So negligence to the truth is the reason there is so little power. Thank God there has been enough power to get people born again, as I just said. The problem is, now here's the problem. The problem is that the sons and daughters of be, those being born again, coming into the church, now are the offsprings of a powerless church. That's the problem. They're born again in weakness, in, into weakness. The spirit, the born-again spirit itself is not weak. It's born in power, out of power. But when it's born, in other words, if you could take a little baby that's just been born, a spiritually born baby that has, you know, somebody got you born again in a coffee shop or at your home or you came to church and you got born again, then they're supposed to take you as a baby and deliver you over into the nursery which is supposed to then begin to help grow you up into sound doctrine. And you're not always supposed to be a baby. Well, thank God you can desire the sincere milk of the word to start with. But after a while, you better get some meat. That's why later on, in I think it's chapter 5, he says, 
it's it's because of you acting like babies and I'm paraphrasing and not doing what I've been what you've been instructed to do. You're not able to digest meat, but strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, who by the reason of the use of their senses have exercised. It's the word gumnazo, which is the word gymnasium, which means you grew up by exercising your spiritual senses. In other words, doing something with the truth that you received. But the church has been like babies delivered. Okay, okay, we're going to take you to the other. We got you born again. We preach Christ crucified on the cross, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. Now we're going to deliver you to the wing of teaching or the understanding of teaching. And then from that point, it kind of goes downhill. Because it goes into a powerless doctrine that is not the truth spoken by Jesus Christ. They're born again into weakness. So the spirit itself is not weak, but the nursery is extremely impoverished and weak of power because the truth has slipped away from the church. Now, let me say this. The breakdown of that of the truth and power did not start in modern times. We think sometimes that, you know, because of all of the junk uh, that is being, you know, propagated on Facebook and everybody's, everybody's a preacher now. You know, everybody is. Everybody is. You don't have to go to, you know, seminary. You don't have to study. You don't have to do, you know, you're just, just because you get on Facebook and say what your thoughts are. You know, everybody should believe it, right? And yet, so little truth. But that, so we blame it sometimes in our minds on the escalation of technology and everybody being able to get a voice. Everybody being able to get a voice. But it didn't start, it didn't start in modern times. This church that was birthed in power began in power and for a number of centuries was walking in that power why were they walking in that power because they were doing exactly right on line with what jesus taught they were following his words believing his sayings and they reciprocated every disciple could repeat back to the next disciple and say, what is our truth on this? And we would all say the same thing, not as a cult, but as speaking the word of truth and all saying the same thing and believing the same thing together. Now, the diminishing or the demise of that did not take place recently, and it didn't take place in modern America. In fact, God is bringing us back around. He's bringing us back around to understand this diminishing of how it started way back then. You have to ask yourself, where is the first church of Jerusalem? Where's it at? Where's that church that we read about in the book of Acts? It's non-existent. It doesn't exist anymore. Are you saying there's no Christians in Jerusalem? Or, uh, there may be some. But not this heyday, not the book of Acts. I mean, you'd have to search under, you know, really have to search to find that church. That church is non-existent. 
And where are the seven churches in the book of Revelation? All those powerful churches, where are they? They are non-existent in the light of their beginnings. In other words, they, they're gone. So something happened. Something happened. So we think what we're asking God for now, uh, as in revival or believing Him for, is something that has basically always been and yet has hit a bump in the road based on modern times. Absolutely not. In fact, in truth, rather, it is a progression of changing from where it has been from where it fell to, where Christianity fell to, letting the truth slip. Why did the church, why is there no, why, why, okay, why can I not go to Turkey today, which is Asia Minor then, and go to what the church was Philadelphia or Laodicea or Thyatira or Sardis or, you know, any of those churches, why, any of those cities, why cannot God not go? Let me ask you this. I think this is a, a rhetorical question. Do you believe that the church that was started by the apostles at, in Jerusalem, do you believe that it was God's perfect will for it to be a thriving church today? I think I should get a resounding yes. I mean, I don't think God ever started something. He said, I'd, I'd like for this to, to bomb. I'd like for this to really go downhill. And all those churches, Ephesus was 70,000 at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy. That's a church in antiquity that was like, you know, wow. That sounds like some of our modern-day mega churches. And it was, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no you know, anything, any way to get this message out except word of mouth, those churches are non-existent today. Now, you may argue, somebody may write in and say, well, no, there's people, you know, that are still there and churches grow. It may be kindled again, but the heyday is gone. The glory days of those books or those churches in, the, it, it was extinguished. Letting the truth slip destroyed the power and the will of evangelism, the will to get out there and do it. Persecution, listen to this, persecution did not destroy the church. The church has always or was always embellished by persecution. It's like gas on the fire. For some reason, the more you persecuted the church in the early days, the more it spread. Those who have turned the world upside down, it was said, have come to our city also. We better get them out of here. They're going to evangelize everybody. Remember that? So persecution against the church was not the thing that destroyed it. The invasion of the Muslim doctrine that invaded Turkey and destroyed the seven churches of Asia Minor, which was modern, we, we understand as modern-day Turkey today, the invasion of the Muslim doctrine that invaded Turkey and destroyed the seven churches of Asia Minor and eventually the Middle East, which is Jerusalem or the church at Jerusalem, was allowed because the church. Why was it allowed? Not because of persecution. It was allowed because they let sound doctrine or truth slip out of their lives. They got one degree off, two degrees off, three degrees off, and in the first three or four hundred years, there was power, there was a lot going on, 
and it looked like it duplicated. It was a carbon copy of everything that Jesus said. And it was an interpreted, it wasn't just said, it was interpreted as exactly how Jesus meant for it to be interpreted. The Dark Ages evolved out of a powerless church that allowed the truth to slip from its foundation through negligence. Now just think for a moment. We're in a war, a spiritual war. Communism is trying to take over our country, That's, which is basically the bottom line behind that is um, the spirit of Antichrist. That spirit has existed for centuries, and it brought the first church eventually to an underground movement. In other words, a vibrant, up-in-your-face boldness that Peter had spread through the church, and it was there for a few hundred years. The Dark Ages, which is referred to by scholars and then secular writers, are at least 900 years of when the world would call it uh, dark. If you're speaking to a, a, a someone in a secular sense, they would say the Dark Ages was dark ages as in there was no innovative thought. Everything stayed primitive. It stayed primitive until, until the renaissance age in which renaissance means an enlightenment an enlightenment of thinking but the truth of the matter is the reason why there was darkness on the planet and there was no innovation and there was nothing taking place is because the church had let truth slip out of their lives and for 900 years or so there was no gospel really being preached the truth was still alive through the pages of this word in other words truth didn't go anywhere thank god this word was you know preserved but it went into monasteries it went into monks taking vows of silence it went into such a disintegrating place that the church came to believe in a doctrine overall that it was by works. Priest, Catholicism, then especially, began to teach indulgences, began to teach all kinds of works to where the disintegration of it's free by grace almost left the planet then you have a time i'm not trying to teach history so much as i want to get a lesson across something across to you then you have what is called the reformation where men like martin luther stand up by revelation and others like him and i'm simplifying this obviously and begin to say no justification is by faith being just with god is through faith We've got to come out of this darkness. And if you'll study, if you'll study history, you'll see a great parallel between 
renaissance, renaissance being all kinds of things started, people started thinking differently and things were being invented and, and all things become, you know, it, it was the progression of our modern, you know, we're standing here today on the shoulders of renaissance thinkers. But the Reformation, in other words, the spiritual part of it, if you'll look, those times, uh, the time when the Reformation started and the Renaissance are very close. There's no coincidence. Some may say the Renaissance started a little earlier, but it was all God working in the earth to get truth back into the earth. Then people began to, st then people like Martin Luther began to stand up and say, wait a minute, it's by faith? Was he persecuted? Oh, yeah. Absolutely so. So the Dark Ages evolved out of a powerless church, and the world would call that 900 years of lack of innovations until the time of the Renaissance. But the truth is, the church had little to no influence on the world because of what it had let slip. The church went dormant in power because they had they had let the truth be taken from its foundation through negligence. The scripture, or the truth rather, was present in the earth, as I said, by existence of the holy scriptures, but it was not experienced in power as it was in the early church because it had been replaced, because of the replacement, rather, those things that had replaced the sayings of Christ. Again, Hebrews 2, 3. We won't get off of it because it's so important that we see it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at first began to be spoken? Who was the first one to speak it? Jesus. Every truth comes from him. Began to be speaking or spoken by the Lord as was confirmed, as was confirmed unto us by them that heard him and then we read also that God confirmed it with as I said this is my expression good housekeeping seal of approval here's my approval on what you're saying oh you'll get you'll get some um, you'll get some things that are uh, don't match up with exactly the example of this like I said certain men that come along who walk in power who say crazy things, but that is not an example of the first church. The first church at large, everybody flowed in the power, and that's where we're going back to. It first began to be spoken by our Lord. All truth to the church originates from the words of Jesus. God has had to transition existing truth. In other words, it existed it didn't, God did not have to rewrite scripture. God has had to transition existing truth back into the earth. I mentioned the Reformation and the Renaissance. The Gospels transition. Now I'll just mention, I'll try to go through this rather quickly because we've got to conclude here in a little bit as the Lord allows or as he directs. The Gospel transition now, I'm just kind of taking you out of that dark age. The Gospels transition from Europe to North America through the Puritans, which is the pilgrims. We call them the pilgrims, but they were a group called the Puritans. Did not produce 
the fullness of power. That was a good start. So we're coming out of the dark ages. It progresses from uh, a place where, gosh, we're thinking, we're thinking, wow, people have been asking for, for this power called revival for like ever since the book of Acts. Oh, no, we're kind of a, we're kind of a relatively new group. As far as history is concerned, this went underground for almost a thousand years. Then God had to circumvent it and take it through people that would say, I'm willing to be persecuted like the Puritans. It went from those churches dying out in Turkey and in the Middle East and in Asia Minor. It transitioned into Europe over into England and that area. Um, and then God takes it and he puts in the hearts of men. We want to go worship God in another nation, another place. You know what that place is? It's called America. It was builded. It was built. It was built. It was built on the word of God, in meaning its foundation. They came here. Don't let any woke person or preacher inspire you to believe that we should apologize for our beginnings. The church coming here. The gospel transitioned from Europe to North America through the Puritans, but that didn't produce the power that we're after. Okay? The great awakenings. We've not studied those so much in here, but we've studied the revivals. But there were consecutive, consecutive great awakenings. You know, I could begin to name names, but I'm not going to go into that. The Whitfields, the different ones that brought the message of, here's what you got to do to be born again. And I say, my God, that's the greatest message, right? But then we're after what we're after, what we believe is our call, and several churches with us, is something so similar, not similar, it is the exact replica of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so all of those great awakenings brought back to America more of God and more of His truth, because that's our subject. Truth will produce power, and the further from truth you get, the less power you will get, despite any contradiction by anyone, whoever has a gift, works in power, and the world calls them a weirdo. But this truth that we're after will sustain us all the way, this power that we're after will sustain us all the way to the end. The Azusa Street Revival that started in the spring of 1906 did not bring the fullness of power. It lasted a while. What's the Azusa Street? It's the one where people started speaking in tongues. again. Can you imagine? Now listen. This is really amazing, and I'm not saying, because I know it did, this happened in several other, a few other places that you can find, but you, did you know that, in, that not until really 1906, the spring of 1906, was the belief or the evidence of praying in tongues really coming into fruition and fullness in America? They call, really, worldwide scholars call Azusa the modern-day Pentecost. 
You know, when Pentecost is where in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell. It went underground because of false doctrine after three or four centuries or a number of centuries. And it was even hard for people to believe the truth of justification by faith. They almost lost that. Salvation was almost lost. We think we're, this has always been around and boy, we've been waiting on this stuff for 2,000 years. No, it went underground. It's a testimony to the works of a military genius, which is our adversary, Satan himself. But even in, in the modern-day outpouring of Azusa Street, the power came for a while, but it subsided after a while, after a, a, a number of few years. The healing revival did not restore the church of the book of Acts back into the earth. The charismatic, now I'm going through this kind of rather quickly, the charismatic revival did not restore the book of Acts back into the church. And I'm, I'm naming now significant eras and time in which I could prove to you if I had the time that there was a, a great significance. The charismatic revivals when all those Catholics were being filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in other tongues, and it was just known worldwide. I mean, we've got all, you know, he fell on the campus of Notre Dame and people were being filled with the Holy Spirit and it was just incredible. The charismatic revival did not restore the book of Acts back into the earth. The teachings of the word or the, t the teaching revival or the word of faith revival did not restore the book of Acts completely back into it. It's all been a progression. God's been bringing it back. But the restoration of the book of Acts revival has begun or has began. Praise God. It really has. The revival that duplicates and will duplicate Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John has already began. But the question to us is, what are we or what are you? Now, here's where we get a little personal. Here's where we get a lot personal. Because we can say that was the, to them then in the book of Hebrews. What they needed to not let slip. But we today interpret it with no temptation to going back under Jewish or Mosaic law. What is the interpretation to us? What is applicable to us? The question to ask is. What are we or what are you personally neglecting? Okay. Now, I'm not asking you to raise your hand or say. Because I don't want to answer or raise. I don't want to raise my hand and say to you. What listen, whatever you neglect will slip from you. If you're going to be a part of this outpouring, you must stay diligent until the end letting his word slip from you personally now listen now you got to get this because here's a transition if you miss this you'll you'll go off and not understand what he's saying to you letting his word his word and i'm not specifically speaking about the written word but letting his word slip from you personally through disobedience will eventually lead to a neg negligence of the written word. I'm going to have to say that again. Letting his word or his directives in your life, because you know Jesus does speak to us, right? Through the Holy Ghost. And he gives a all of us are under his directives. Letting his word slip from you personally 
through disobedience will eventually lead to a negligence to his written word. To turn a deaf ear to his spoken internal word will eventually dull your ability to interpret and keep his written word. I didn't get enough amens. I'll buy one. To turn a deaf ear from what he's saying to you personally will eventually dull. In other words, you won't be as crisp when you're really trying to get into the Word of God. You're, it'll dull your ability to interpret and keep the written Word. How do you know that? Because of what we just taught. If you let something slip. Well, that's different. That's the Word. And no, You mean to tell me the voice of the Holy Spirit instructing you if you don't do it? and you continue not to do it, will not cause you to come to a place to where you become dull of hearing. And if you're dull of hearing in one place, the only place that the Holy Spirit gets revelation over to you is through the power of your new nature. He speaks through that. For it to be crisp, clean, and effectively able to have a hearing ear it cannot be tarnished continually with disobedience i'm preaching real good here and i'm not not getting near the amens of on the level that i'm preaching if you do not keep and practice a life of or if you do not keep and you practice a life of disobedience to his specifics in your life you will eventually believe foolish and unlearned doctrine. Paul talked about unlearned questions or unlearned doctrine of the Word of God. The key word is endurance. Please say this with me, endurance. I don't think we could say that over and over again enough. That's also a, that continual theme in, you know, that's part of Hebrews. Endure, endure, endure. The key word is endurance and obedience to the things that he has said to you personally. Sac look, look, get this. Sacrificing more of what you're already obeying to him or for him will not make up for what you're disobeying. And hiding it in the deep places of your heart as if he didn't say it. That is good ouch for all of us but it is good sacrificing more of what you're already obeying him in will not make up for what you are being disobedient in and hiding it in a deep place or a deep room of your heart as if to say i didn't hear that <laughs> oh yes you did Oh, yes, I did. Now, let me be specific. And here's where love must abound. I'm speaking to revivalists that are watching. And I'm speaking to family prayer center people. Okay. Other people can just relax. God has said 
some of you, and I've, <laughs> I, I brought, this is good, I can broadcast this because only he can go to you and say, remember? God has said to some of you, give him more time in prayer. If, he's ever, if you've ever heard him say that and you're not doing that, that's just one level. Now here we go. Because you didn't come here to play footsies, I don't think. God has said to some of you, I'm really being nice. To some of you, give him more time or begin certain regiments of fasting. Oh, not me. I, the apostles did that. Uh, pastor, you're supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. Dull of hearing, letting things slide. Oh, God, here we go. Fasten them seat belts. And I, I'm going to go straight into there so you can't catch me and you can't throw your Bibles at me. And there's an exit door, but it's blocked now, so I'll barricade myself in there. God has said to some of you, and I'm being nice because it could be more than some, be more faithful to church. Be more faithful to church. <laughs> now, man, pastor, that's enough. Let's say the benediction, pray, and go home, and we'll be, let's go eat. <laughs> now, i got to ratchet this down. God has said to some of you, start coming back to church on Wednesday night or at least begin to sow into Wednesday night. What do you mean sow? Well, I live a ways away, but uh, I've heard God say, I need to be here at least, at least one or two Wednesday nights out of every month. If you hide that or say, oh, but I'm in the Word, one obedience does not make up for another disobedience. And he has said to us that we are to meet together. Oh, God. I've got this crescent wrench and I'm just cranking this thing. God is cranking it down. God has said that some of you, some of you should start coming to prayer on Sunday nights. Or at least, as we've taught before, so some of your Sunday nights. Because he has said prophetically, he wants us to meet together and pray together. God has spoken to many of you. Listen to this. God has spoken to many of you that the legitimate excuse for virtual church, 
for many of the family prayer center reach that reaches uh, the, the, for many of the of the family prayer center in far-reaching places i'll read this again is not an excuse for you within a certain circumference what do you can you read that again yes i will god has spoken to some of you i'd say many of you that the legitimate now we change the legitimate excuse i call it he's calling it a legitimate excuse for virtual church seeing us online for many of those who are also family prayer center people that live in far places like in other states is not an excuse for you now i understand family children schools school nights and long distances that Immokalee is for many of you. But not, but here's the thing. Not everybody gets a hall pass. And I'm wondering, see, see, this is what I'm wondering. This is what I'm wondering. He's prophetically saying to us, I want you, see, some of you used to come to three services a week. Now you're fighting to get to one. And I haven't seen some people for, two months sometimes there's there's a battle going on there and to some of you i told you it's going to ratchet down but we're teaching the word of god here not let not letting things slip virtual church does not replace what he's said to you and it can come just your obedience to it may be just so into it you can't be there all the time. But let me tell you about my friends for just a moment as I think about them, as I had planned to think about them. Uh, Nigel and Evangeline Winter. They, are, they live in Connecticut. I've known them for 20-something years. They're probably watching this morning. They go to this church. Maybe, uh, maybe they have maybe they've gone astray and are watching Pastor Jim Martin. I don't know. But it's very possible they're watching. They are givers to this church. They bless this church. They're part of it. I send Nigel and Evangeline my notes. And they're at all Pastor Dave Roberson's conferences. I was sitting next to him at uh, a fellowship in Tulsa the last night I was there this past October. And precious people, they live... Uh, actually, I was at Angie Pyle's house, which is Gary Carpenter's daughter's house, Angie and Kevin's house, and we were about to leave and fly out the next morning, and and uh, I was sitting next to um, uh, Nigel, and somehow we got into this conversation. They live in Connecticut, but Evangeline uh, works for the city of New York in New York, in downtown. So he's telling me what his schedule is and what they do on a five-day weekday basis so and i'm like no wait a minute repeat this repeat this because christy used to tell me christy smith used to tell me he was from new york he said um hour or two ride one way is nothing for us us new yorkers it's we don't even think nothing about that okay but uh Nigel's sitting there talking to me, and we're, 
And he goes, I, I take, now I might be right, wrong on some of this, but it's pretty close. Nigel, if you're watching, you'll have to text me or email me later. He said, I take Evangeline, Evangeline um, drive her to the train station. We live in Connecticut. We drive her to the train station. It takes us about, I think he said, now I'm, I know I'm going to be real close and I could be a little off. I think he said like 30 to 45 minutes. That's the drive to the train station. She gets on the train and she travels one hour and a half into the city. Once she gets off the train, she gets on the subway that takes her to her place of employment, which is another 45 minutes. Then she has to, she doesn't live there in town. She comes home every night. So I said, wait a minute, two and a half to three hours, one way, every day, six hours, five, six hours, every day traveling. Oh yeah, that's what we do. Once your mind resolves, I'm going to do this, it makes no more excuses for it. When you begin to give and he said something to you and you begin to patty cake with his command, you will eventually say, this is the toughest thing and I shouldn't be asked to do this. And yet, my friend was saying, no, no, she's got a good job. And for that good job, we travel, she travels three hours one, you know, one way and we've accepted that and that's what we do. Is he worth the price? Yes, he is. Now, he's not worth the price unless you have not spent hours in his arms. But then if you have, I'm talking about intimacy, then if you have, then no matter what you do or no matter what you have to do, to be obedient, it won't matter. It absolutely won't matter. I get a little, um, I got a clip. Can you go get that clip ready? It's only three minutes long. We'll be out of here in just a few minutes. I get a little disgusted with myself when I see myself sometimes. I don't seem to complain so much with my mouth as what often is in my heart about what he has told me to do. But when I see the book of Philippians in my mind, and once again, understand what it took for Paul. You know, there are Pauline epistles but there are Pauline epistles that are prison epistles. And Philippians is a prison epistle. All scholars will agree. I've taught on this. I learned, I, I first started with hearing Rick Renner, which is a notable Greek theologian and scholar. I first heard him speak about this. I've recently heard Pastor Jim Martin do a lesson on it in which he did some of his own study. Paul eventually, through his persecutions, he was jailed many times, but he eventually, and it's understood that he wrote the book of Philippians 
from a place of incarceration. That incarceration went by some scholars, and I heard Rick Renner, who is a notable scholar, who is just absolutely versed on uh, the Bible and very well traveled in all of uh, biblical cities. And he was on one of his tours one day, and he was at Rome, probably with a group of people, and he came to a place where was supposedly the palace at that time, and scholars, many scholars will agree that the palace was built on uh, underneath aqueducts, and there were also prisons underneath that area. There were layers to the prisons, and the last prison and the worst of all prisons to be kept was the place called the Tullian Keep. It was a place of extreme and external or internal in that place darkness. It was also the bottom rung of the ladder where the aqueducts and the sewer system ran through there. It is very well thought by many scholars that Paul spent a good portion of his incarceration in Rome in the Tullian Keep. Thus, it is also understood that in that place of what we would call raw sewage, he wrote the book of Philippians. Somebody said, how could he write the book of Philippians in jail? Dave Roberson explained that also through his studies and said as a Roman citizen, he was allowed to receive from couriers and send from couriers, mail, receive mail and send mail. That's why he could write. Now see, there's parts of me I don't like yet. I know I'm identifying with some of you. Pastor Jim just did a study and he was talking about that place of the Tulian Keep. When I understand that the man who wrote the book of Philippians says to me, the church, probably with hands chained for days on end in a dark place, in a sewage, a place of a septic tank, for him to write to me. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here's a man that was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, continual. And for him to be in that place, he could have thought this. My condition of heart many times might be this. Lord, seriously? Seriously? After me going all over the earth teaching your gospel and being beat in every land and all kinds of persecution, and this is where I wind up? This is where I wind up? This is the end of my ministry? This is where I wind up? And when his hands come down to where he can write, he writes to the Philippian church and sends the courier out with rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. To write the same things to you is not grievous. Why was it not grievous? 
because it's the same thing that he did. For me to say rejoice to you, I don't have any conviction to tell you that because that's what I'm doing in the place of where I'm at, present tense. You won't fall in love with him that you won't do whatever he asks. Many of you that are out there are contemplating, contemplating new places of spirituality with Christ. Some of you watching have not yet been filled with the Spirit as with the evidence of praying in tongues. That does not make you a second-class citizen of heaven or of the church. But there is so much more. Christ gave us a hunger innately inside of us at conception, at born again, to believe there's something more. There's something more. There's a peace more than what the world can give us. It's not wrong to prosper. It's not wrong to have. It's not wrong to enjoy. You see all my grandkids come up around. That's a joy. But the greatest joy of the world, the greatest joy is to know him. I want you to listen. You've heard this before and we'll listen to this and we'll close after that. I'll pray prayer benediction. It's been a, a little bit long, but I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I know you've been ratcheted down on a little bit, but you've got you've to ask yourself some of those real questions. You've really got to ask yourself. The minister that you'll hear doing this, some of you have heard it many times, or I enjoy it so much. Dr. S.M. Lockridge was born in 1913. He died in 2000 at the age of 87 years old. He's an African-American pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, California, which went on to have upwards of 100,000 followers or members, as I understand. And he, he, he preached this sermon, and this is just an e excerpt of his sermon, Do You Know Him? And I will give to you this. If you know him, nothing that he asks of you will be said no to. Amen? Can you please catch those? And Mike, will you catch those? Harry, when you have it ready. It's just enjoyable for three minutes to hear this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be at all 
sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his word is lighter. stand with me. Father, that's my king. And whatever my king is asking me to do, I will do. I will find another way to surrender another part of me today that was not there yesterday. I will come closer and I will allow, allow myself to ask whatever questions that you're asking me. Father, I thank you for the truth of this message this morning that we let nothing slip because of negligence to anything that you have said to us personally as in obedience. We speak this truth both to the hearers here and the hearers wherever this message has went out. May the grace of God rest upon them and the peace of our Lord Jesus sustain them and anyone that is searching father anyone that is watching anyone that is here that is watching or uh, that is searching for another place another level of spirituality and being coming into you I just want us to pray this prayer if you're if you're watching this morning and you do not know him. There's a question in your heart. As whether you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior. Let's pray this prayer together. It won't hurt us even as Christians. Dear Heavenly Father. I thank you. For Jesus Christ. 
I'm asking him. Jesus, I'm asking you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. And wash me in your blood. I receive you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Now let's pray one more prayer because I've sensed that people are watching or maybe people here that, that are in question. It's okay to say, Lord, what is the truth on all this on going to another level? Let's pray this together as Christians. Dear Heavenly Father, show me personally as only you can do the truth concerning praying in tongues, laying hands on the sick, and receiving this kind of power. Help me, Lord, as a gentle Lord, to understand these things in the days ahead and guide me in making decisions to go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We love you. Have a wonderful day. We'll see many of you tonight.